Thanks, Sarah, and good morning, Cedar Mill. My name is Dave. It's great to be with you. As we conclude our series in Daniel this morning, I want to let you know that in a similar way that Paul and Bethany dove into Daniel chapter 9 and talked about prayer, I want to do the same thing this week, except for we're going to dive into chapter 7 of Daniel and look at one of the four uh, prophecies, apocalyptic prophecies um, in this book. And so we're going to dive into, into chapter 7. And if you don't know anything about Daniel, or if you're new with us, the first six chapters were historical narrative. There, it was a story about how Daniel and his three friends are taken off into exile to the city of Babylon to live in this pagan city and serve this pagan king. But in chapter 7, all of a sudden, the book of Daniel shifts, takes a turn, and there's a new genre or type of writing. And these last five chapters of Daniel uh, contain these four apocalyptic visions. And let me tell you just quickly about what's happening in that shift. These visions actually put into pictures the grand conflict between God, his people, and the powers of darkness that are happening in the spiritual world. So in a sense, in these last chapters, we get to look behind the curtain. We get to kind of peek back into the spiritual realm. And, and this peek is meant to remind us as believers that there is a greater reality that goes beyond the reality that we see in front of us. That there's more going on in our world than often meets the eye. So we're going to look again at Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, and we're going to dive into this vision. Here we go. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote, he wrote down the substance of his dream. So right away, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that we've done some time travel. We've flashed back in time, and now all of a sudden, we're back to the beginning of chapter 4 when Belshazzar was still king. Another thing to note um, here is that the way Daniel is laid out, chapter 7 is actually paired with chapter 2. They go together. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are kind of parallel ideas. They complement one another, and they both talk about a succession of kingdoms that lead up to the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And if you remember in chapter 2, there was this giant statue. It was made of all these different types of metals, and the different materials, the different metals represented four different world empires. And here in chapter seven, we're not gonna have different metals or materials, we're gonna have four different beasts that again, represent those same empires. Here we go. Verse two, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So right off the bat, we're in the sea. There are these winds coming from all four points of the compass. And this indicates that what's going to be talked about here is a massive global occurrence. This is sort of a worldwide sort of kind of to the ends of the earth shattering vision that Daniel's having. And the sea, throughout the Bible, the sea is something that refers to the nations and in this vision, we notice right away that the sea is churned up. In other words, the nations are in turmoil. And it's interesting if you uh, compare this moment 
to a moment in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. What is the sea like in those chapters around the throne of God? Well, in Revelation around the throne of God, the sea is like glass. It's smooth, it's calm, it's serene, it's peaceful. And the idea there is that we serve a God who is never chaotic or out of control. But here, the nations are. Here, the nations are in turmoil. Verse 3. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up, one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. So right away we see that Daniel's having this dream, these visions, there's some weird stuff happening. But one of the things we notice is that the different nations and kings and kingdoms and empires are symbolized by different animals. And we're familiar with this because we still do this today. In fact, if I asked you, what animal represents the country we live in, the United States of America? You'd say, of course, an eagle. And if I went a little farther and said, well, you know, maybe I said something like, this year a donkey will battle an elephant to rule under the eagle. You might think about that for a minute and you'd know that I was talking about what? An election year in our country. An elephant being a Republican, a donkey, a Democrat, an election year to see who would rule our nation. Now, if you were reading that statement that I just made 2,500 years from now, because that's how long ago Daniel was written, 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years from now, you'd go, what is he talking about? But we all understand it. We all have a sense of what's being said. In the same way, and here's my point, Daniel's readers had much more of an idea of what he was talking about than we do. They were more familiar with these, these symbols and these animals. So back to the story. We have these animals, these beasts. Beasts, they each represent different kingdoms. The first one is a lion with the wings of an eagle. Friends, this first beast represents the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, archaeology tells us that if you were to, to go into the ancient city of Babylon, you would enter through something called the Ishtar Gates, and archaeology has discovered that etched right onto the Ishtar gates is this very symbol, a winged lion. And in this vision, Babylon's wings, the lion's wings are torn off. In other words, some of its power, some of its terror, some of its world dominance is starting to fade. And this makes sense because if you'll remember, Daniel has this vision during a time when the Medo-Persian Empire is on the rise and they are closing in and they are just about to take over and take power from Babylon. But that's our first beast, the winged lion, Babylon. 
Next in verse five, we'll, we have what I'll call the lopsided bear. This beast is the Medo-Persian empire. This is the empire that takes over from Babylon. And one side is bigger than the other, most likely because even though Cyrus the Great, the great uh, the leader and general, united the Medes and the Persians together into one great empire, the Persians were always the ones with more strength and military might. This was not an equal pairing. The Persians carried a little more uh, weight than the Medes. And so this bear is lopsided. And then there are lots of ideas out there about these three ribs, but one idea that's pretty common is that they represent three kings, the three kings that the Medo-Persians conquered right before they conquered Babylon. So there we have uh, Medo-Persia, the bear. Next in verse six, we have beast three. And beast three looks like a leopard, and this symbolizes the Greek empire. And here's what's notable about leopards. If you think about this, this makes perfect sense. They're very fast and agile. And this one is especially agile because it has four wings. Now, if you were to look at a map of Alexander the Great's conquest, the leader of the the Greek empire, you'd see that in just 12 short years, this is amazing, 12 short years, he conquered all of the known world. In fact, he ruled from the Indus River in Pakistan all the way to the Nile. This was a huge accomplishment, and it only took him 12 years. 12 years. This leopard has four heads, symbolizing four directions, all four directions, because Alexander went north, south, east, and west, and he did it quickly. And then finally, we have the fourth beast. And, and here's what Daniel sees in, in the fourth beast, verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. This beast has a grill. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This vision's just getting weirder. But friends, this is the fourth beast, and it's the most powerful and terrifying and ruthless of them all. And this describes perfectly the way of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire conquered the world, and they wouldn't just take over. They wouldn't just just come in and start to rule. They would annihilate people. They would lay waste to cities and nations in the name of peace. And, And now back to the grill, the iron teeth. The primary Roman battle gear and weaponry was almost exclusively iron. They used iron to conquer the world. And and then there are these horns, and we'll talk more about these horns in a bit, but a horn, kind of in a basic sense, was a symbol of power. Friends, this was a powerful empire, the most powerful the world had ever seen. In fact, it's considered still today to be one of the most enduring empires in the history of the world, the Roman Empire. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. 
His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Friends, this is actually one of the most majestic scenes in all of scripture. And the imagery here is a lot like our modern day courtroom when the judge walks in and the bailiff announces, you know, the honorable judge so-and-so all rise and people stand in respect. Friends, that's the picture. This is the God of heaven and earth who rules and judges all of human history, taking his seat on his judgment throne. And then he's given this name, the Ancient of Days. Friends, this is a name that reminds us of who our God is, that he's the eternal one, that he always has been and that he always will be. His robe, we're told, is is blazing white, as is his hair. And this symbolizes his purity and his perfection and his holiness, but also his supreme wisdom, his all-knowing nature. That's who our God is. And you'll notice his throne, the throne he takes a seat on, it's on wheels, and then there's a river of fire. And this means that his judgment and his justice is not just fixed, It's not just stationary. It's not just for one people or nation or place, but it's mobile. He reigns and judges over everyone, everywhere. That's our God. And and we're told also that there are those who attend and stand before him. It says 10,000 times 10,000 are there. Do you know how many that is? Take a I was a math major in college. Do me a favor. Take a quick guess. 10,000 times 10,000 equals 100 million. And I know that's a symbolic number, but it's a big number. And they all sit and books are opened, meaning judgment is about to begin. Our God is about to judge. Friends, let me pause right here, right in the middle of this vision and ask you, Does that scene have significance for you and me today? Does it matter to us? You better believe it does. Friends, in a world filled with injustice and oppression and racism, God will one day open the books. In a world where pandemics sweep the globe, God will one day calm the waters. In a world where where wars rage and calamities strike and diseases devastate, God is still on his throne. In a world where evil and deviancy and immorality are commonplace, this passage says, our God, the ancient of days, will have the last word. You see, ultimately, this is a picture of the authority and purity and sovereign strength of our God, the one who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. That's the little horn. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Friends, if you have read the Gospels, you know that Jesus' favorite name for himself was this title right here, the Son of Man. It's how he refers to himself over and over and over again. And every time he does, he's making reference to this passage right here. He's saying, the one spoken of in this passage is me. And this title, friends, by the way, which really just means human being, the son of man, human being, is paired with the fact that he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And that was really powerful imagery. It's really powerful imagery in the Bible because clouds almost always in the scriptures indicate the presence of God himself. Listen to this from Psalm 104. The Lord makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. Or from Isaiah 19, see the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Friends, this image of God coming on the clouds was so well known that when first century Jews were awaiting the Messiah, they often referred to him as the cloud rider. Now, Jesus is coming as a son of man, as a human being, as one like us, but then he also comes on the clouds as God himself. So who is he? He is the God-man, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Now, stop for a minute. Let's go back to this, this description and let me ask you something. Where does this encounter between Jesus and the Father, the Ancient of Days, happen? They come together, Jesus walks in, he's led into God's presence. Where does this happen? Does it happen on earth or does it happen in heaven? What do you think is being described? Well, when you read it, I think you'll agree that it seems to be happening in heaven, in some sort of heavenly throne room. And I bring this up because some people, when they read this passage, are quick to think and believe that this passage describes the second coming of Christ. But I have to tell you that, that I don't think that's true, that I and other scholars believe it actually describes the ascension of Jesus from the world back to the Father described in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when he goes up on the clouds to be reunited with his Father. And, and when you read it, that really makes sense. This sounds like a heavenly inauguration ceremony. Like, like Jesus is being made Lord and King, and this is his inauguration Listen again, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven into this throne room, this heavenly throne room. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, friends, this is Jesus being presented to the Father as the one who has accomplished the work he was sent here to do. The work of dying for the sins of the world and defeating death by rising from the grave. He's now in this scene being welcomed back to heaven to rule and reign and sit at the right hand of God, the Father, the Ancient of Days. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. This is unexpected for me. 
We've just received amazing news of who our God is and that Jesus has been reunited with the Father and that he sits on the throne and that he rules and reigns and Daniel's troubled in spirit by the visions that passed through his mind. Why? Why does this scene cause Daniel so much trouble, so much angst? I mean, why is he concerned instead of comforted? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Daniel, from his perspective, He's just lived virtually his entire life under a pagan empire in a pagan city. And this vision is telling him that there are three more empires to go before the Son of Man shows up and his kingdom is brought to earth. There's a long road ahead. It's been a long road and now there's seemingly no end in sight. And furthermore, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get harder. It's just going to get more difficult as the kingdoms get more and more ruthless. That's why Daniel's troubled. Verse 16, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. One thing to notice here quick is who gets the kingdom? Who is the kingdom offered to? Yeah, it's the holy people of the Most High. It's God's people. It's the church. It's you and me. In other words, friends, if you follow God by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his kingdom is yours to live in now. Now, it's been inaugurated and you can live your life, not under the ultimate rule and authority of the worldly kingdoms around us, but under the rule and authority of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God in heaven. He can be your king. You can live in his kingdom. Verse 19. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and had that, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. This is the angel to Daniel. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Quick pause here. It says that there's going to be this this evil leader that rises up that persecutes God's people and that they're going to be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. This is the Jewish way of saying three and a half years. One year, two years, and a half a year. Time, times, and a half a time. 
And, and this will come up when we talk about the different ways of interpreting this passage. So I wanted you to see that. Here we go, verse 26. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever, this, this evil ruler. Then the sovereignty power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. All right, we're, we're getting long in this sermon, but, but I want to close with a few thoughts for you. And I First, I want to give you sort of a general overview about this final explanation that Daniel gets of this fourth kingdom, because there are some different opinions, there's some different views of what's happening here and what's specifically being said. And so I want to give you at least an overview of some different ways of thinking about this. Um, And I'll give you three. Here's, Here's the first. First of all, there are people who see this passage and others like it, and they think it all has happened in the past. This is called the preterist view. These people believe that these events happened completely in the past and primarily, if not completely, describe the Roman Empire. Now for them, it's still considered prophecy because when Daniel uh, saw it and when he, when he spoke it, it was in the future for him. It's in the past for us, but it was in the future for him. So it's still prophecy. Um, and th- these folks would say that the 10 horns are most likely the 10 provinces of the Roman Empire or, or 10 leaders of those provinces or, or that the horns represent the Roman Senate. And the little horn, people in this group, the little boasty, braggy, powerful horn, some say that that little horn points directly to Julius Caesar, the first emperor, the one who kind of took control from the Senate, made, made the Roman Empire no longer a republic, but now an empire. Others say it points to Herod the Great and his role in persecuting God's people and even crucifying Jesus. They also point out, and quite convincingly actually, that Emperor Nero's persecution of the church and the Jewish wars that ultimately led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that whole event lasted almost exactly three and a half years. Time, times, and a half a time. That's the preterist view. This is all about the past. Then there's what's called the futurist view. And obviously, if preterists think this all happens in the past. Futurists see these events as primarily happening in the future. Now, everybody, most scholars, most all scholars agree that the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. The debate is, is it just the Roman Empire or does it move forward from there? And futurists think that it starts by describing the Roman Empire, but ultimately describes something that's going to happen in the future. They believe that the ten horns represent a revived Roman Empire of sorts. That the Roman Empire is going to sort of re-emerge in a different form. This is the group that gets real, real suspicious about the European Union. Ten European countries coming together. Oh, no. And the little horn, the one that's boasty and braggy and all-powerful, folks in this camp would say that that little horn depicts a godless leader. Some would call him the Antichrist. 
that will rise up from small beginnings in the last days. And then that three and a half year period, this group says this is the period of suffering that will be called the great tribulation. And then there are various opinions about if the church will be around for that tribulation or not, if we'll be taken away beforehand, in the middle or after, and that's another conversation. But that's the futurist view. And then there's another view called the historist view. And it's important to note that, that this view, although maybe not as popular or talked about today, was predominant amongst Protestants up until the 1800s. In fact, many of the reformers took this view. And basically what this view states is that the evils of this fourth kingdom, this Roman empire, will continue and repeat over and over and over again throughout history until Jesus Christ returns. People in this camp will say that's why there are multiple horns popping up to represent the repetitive nature of these evil kings and kingdoms throughout history. And friends, what's hard when you, when you get into this is that every single one of these views makes some good points. I personally find myself drawn to different aspects uh, of each one of these views. They've got strong biblical evidence. And so I'm certainly not here this morning to tell you which view to take. Uh, I'm not even gonna tell you which view I hold to, but I do wanna close by encouraging you with just a couple things. Because if, if all we do with prophetic apocalyptic scripture is look at horns and heads and beasts, and, and we don't look for the big picture, the big message, I think we're actually going to miss the forest for the trees. You see, time and time again, throughout the book of Daniel, we are pointed to the coming of Jesus, the birth of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're pointed to his kingdom that was established through his resurrection. We're pointed to the fact that he rules and reigns now in heaven at the right hand of his Father. And so first, friends, it is clear that Christ's kingdom has come, that Jesus has been inaugurated as king, that through his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God is now available by grace to anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ. The kingdom of God is available to you now in Jesus. So live for the kingdom, live with him as your king. Two, if you choose to do that, if you choose to follow Jesus in this world and make him your king, your Lord, the second thing you need to know is this. You will be persecuted, resisted. You will face trials, temptations, evils, and suffering. That's what the scriptures say over and over and over again. And that's what we read about in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, right in the middle of this vision, right in the middle of this last, se last section, in verse 21, Daniel says this. He says, I watched this horn, this little horn that was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. The oppressor is defeating God's people. The, the oppressor is winning. This little horn, some would call him an antichrist, is winning 
And this is what we see time and time again throughout history from the first century, starting with Stephen, all the way up until now, God's people are oppressed and persecuted and pushed down. It is not an easy road that we have chosen. One quote I read this week said, Antichrist, and by the way, in the New Testament, John talks about how there are many antichrists, how time and time again, people rise up to oppose Jesus as the Christ, and they're all called antichrists. But he says, one quote I read said, Antichrists in this world always test the church's resolve and faithfulness. In other words, all this persecution, all this suffering, all this resistance God is using it to test us and to transform us that we might be people of more resolve and more perseverance and more faithfulness. And so let me ask you this. Do you have a faith that will carry you through persecution? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will give you hope when all earthly hope around you seems to have vanished? And finally, time and time and time again, The scriptures tell us something that we can bank on, and that's this. Someday, Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom. He's been inaugurated as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He sits and rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, but someday he will come to consummate his kingdom, and it will be fully realized in this place, on this earth, and in our Lives And when Jesus does this, all evil and suffering and persecution and oppression and pain and sorrow and loss will come to an end. So I'll close this series with that great hope, with that wonderful message, and with a verse that declares this, maybe the most important truth to us from Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. His kingdom, that's God's kingdom, the kingdom of the ancient of days, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. May it be so.